you have stories both on your staff level and in the community that can back up that you're an equitable space, that you're for inclusion and that you're for diversity. No one is where they're supposed to be, but uh, what are you doing to help push that needle of social justice forward just a little bit? Thank you for joining us for FYI, the Public Libraries podcast. I'm Kathleen Hughes with the Public Library Association. Our guest today is Jessica Bratt. Jessica is Youth Services Manager at the Grand Rapids, Michigan Public Library. Jessica began the DigiBridge partnership with Grand Rapids Public Schools and has received national recognition as a library journal mover and shaker. She writes reviews for library trade publications, serves on the board of directors for the Michigan Library Association, and served on the ALA 2019 Coretta Scott King Book Award Jury Committee. She presents nationwide on Let's Talk About Race Storytimes. She was interviewed for MTV's article, In Trump's America, Activist Librarians Who Won't Be Shushed. Jessica is also currently a presenter with PLA's Traveling Workshop, Social Justice in Public Libraries, Equity Starts With Us. Her news adventure revolves around trying to balance her gaming life with motherhood. Welcome, Jessica, and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your library background? I started off uh, as a page when I was really young at the Chicago Public Libraries, and I worked there all the way until I finished college. Then after college, I went to grad school at Indiana University in Bloomington, and then my first job was uh, just as a youth services librarian at the Grand Rapids Public Library. So I've been on this library adventure for a few years now. I'm really interested in the DigiBridge partnership, which is between the Grand Rapids Public Library and the Grand Rapids Schools. Can you tell us about that and how it came about and what it is? DigiBridge was started out of a need and seeing that the library wasn't in the community as it should have been or as youth services uh, even needed to be at that time. And I noticed that the kids didn't have a good relationship with um, us as the librarians. Uh, They were coming around the library, and we were surrounded by schools, but none of the kids were venturing inside of the library. And so I wanted to change that atmosphere to let them know that we were welcoming and that we were a lot of fun and we could provide whatever they wanted in that space, but trying to um, make that space inviting. So one of the things I knew is if I could get buy-in and champions in the community, um, it might encourage more kids to give us a chance and stop by. So I went to the schools just with flyers around what we were going to do for that season and met one of the champions for the DigiBridge initiative that just simply asked what we were trying to do and what our goal was. And then it flipped from what we had to what did the schools need, what they wanted um, to see, and just listening to all of that, um, going in to not try to plug in what we could do for them, but really what their wish list, I always call it like dreaming, and then taking all of those dreams back to my library to say, hey, there's an opportunity where we can meet some of these needs. Um, And so the first thing was making sure kids had access to resources, whether they were in school or out of school. So that's how the digital library cards came about, um, piloting that and then making sure that everyone in the district, if they come in, they have access to our databases. Some of the initiatives are still going strong from that um, initial is our One Book, One City, uh, where all of the kids in fifth grade, they get a particular book that both the school and our library decides upon the title. And then we fly in the author and 
they uh, go to all of the fifth graders. So we'll have Jacqueline Woodson in um, this year, which we're super pumped about uh, with her book, Harbor Me. But those are just a few of the initiatives that were really born out of trying to make sure that we find those opportunities to meet the needs of, of our community. Is DigiBridge ongoing? Yeah, it's still going strong. Um, some of our initial people have retired. So schools, I feel like, are ever-changing and ever-growing. So there's still um, a committee that meets. But there are some initiatives that the schools have taken over just for sustainability reasons and allowing us capacity to grow in other ways. So for, like, database training and stuff like that, um, the initial people that were, like, the train-the-trainer model, um, they now do that within their district and professional development. And then what that has allowed us to do, like stuff that sort of is retired. Um, So our teen tech camp, that was born out of this initiative. That has retired to make room for um, our Mindstorms program. So that's an ongoing program at our library every week that the robotics team from the from high schools, they'll come in and the kids that attend that and are really into that. It's pretty awesome just to see how that has manifested and grown. And then some of the new ways um, that we partner is with after school programming and during the summer we did summer meals um, for a while and then we transitioned into making sure for the summer school programming that we have our summer reading program in their space and we have programs in their space so we pilot that um, last year, sort of that summer learning connection. And the WHOOP, which is the after-school program here, they got super excited because it was learning that didn't feel like the kids were in school for another couple of hours. So one of the teachers that was involved with that was promoted over the summer to a principal position. So her school even has reached out to figure out if that is an after-school program that we can grow there all year round. So there's some really exciting opportunities that we're um, transitioning that all have grown from this original initiative. So I want to learn more about a topic you present on. Let's talk about race and story times. I know it's a complicated issue and uh, needs much more time than we have today, but can you briefly explain the issue and share some steps librarians can take to address? That was born out of the summer of 2016. So even before the election, um, it was the height of uh, police brutality in the nation. And so there was a lot of feelings in the community around how do we help support families and children and navigating this oftentimes difficult and, and complex world and how do we give kids the tools to process the world around them. The librarians, especially the white librarians in my system, wanted to figure out what more they could do. And when the election hit in November, there was sort of talks around social emotional intelligence, around disrupting bias, and what, as a profession that's like 88% white, where's a space that white librarians could sort of fight oppression and move toward a space of liberation. And I knew that story time has power. It's a space of power, partially because if you do look through the five faces of oppression that the public library does a association does a lot of training out of, one is cultural dominance. And so in that space, it's focused a lot in looking at how to make the invisible visible and how to make sure that our differences are recognized and more importantly affirmed and celebrated. 
I realized that story time instructors had that space of power that we can help disrupt biases and give kids the tools that they need and the parents the tools that they need to start having conversations that are age appropriate early and often. So the biggest thing was trying to get instructors to realize that they don't have to be afraid of bringing social-emotional intelligence. I'm saying that as a buzzword. They don't have to be afraid um, in a way to make sure that kids understand that there's science behind genetics and just quite frankly, like we're born with different skin tone colors to like distill it in its simplest format Uh, because kids recognize that, they see that, and that's okay to make that fact known and then move on (laughs) to the next thing if that makes sense. Trying to package and wade through um, fear, how our society is set up, how we deal around race and how we've shaped it with policy and stuff like that. And then break it down to be what does that look like in story time if we are really truly going to celebrate and represent the whole community? Why is it (laughs) that some kids may see themselves more than others? And then how do we have those conversations um, with parents to realize that different is not weird? and that everyone should feel when they come into a space that not only are they welcome verbally, but they can see themselves throughout story time, whatever that would look like in the form of being thoughtful and intentional about the books that instructors pick or the conversations that they can have um, with parents and just having those beginning like social justice begins with me talks on just being a good citizen and a good human being because we ask kids to learn how to work with people who look different than themselves, work alongside and live with people who are different than themselves. We don't give them the tools to do that. We just say, hey, when you go out here, um, (laughs) be a good human. And we don't realize that we as adults don't model what that looks like. And if research says that biases start as early as 36 months, how do you give parents and kids the tools to realize that we are all inherently biases, but what do we need to do to disrupt that? Related to that discussion, collection development strategies, do you have any thoughts on how to make collection development more equitable? The American Library Services of Children also had this amazing webinar by Edie Campbell around decolonizing children's literature. And so they did a really good job in breaking down sort of the history around children's literature, some of those cultural nuances um, that go into collection development. I tell storytime instructors all the time, so we are already filtering books just due to like age development and appropriateness around words. Um, What do the pictures look like? Is the story interactive? So we have to view stories through that lens. But on top of that, there are all these cultural nuances of is this book a great representation of X, Y, and Z. So I feel like they do a really good job if anyone is on the journey of learning more around the history of children's literature, that's a place to start. Kirkus does a really good job. They have a tool around learning more of three different parts around identity, whether that's inclusion, if it's just assumed blackness or assumed whiteness or assumed brownness. Um, In a lot of picture books, it might not be specifically obvious if someone belongs to a certain ethnicity. So they do a really good job 
lab and, and what does that look like in literature. They also have one where if identity is um, central to the story. So if you're specifically trying to highlight a character around um, what does that look like to be a Mexican-American or um, what does that look like to be an African-American or a tribally enrolled Native American, it does a really good job around if that is central to the story. Those two are like good starter tools around looking at um, collection development and growing your story time collection as well as um, your library collection. Could you repeat the name of the webinar that you said? So it was at the 2018 ALS National Institute in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was all aboard embracing advocacy and inclusion. And then their title of their presentation was Review is Critical, Developing Decolonial Book Evaluating Competencies. And so they go through like the whole history and librarians who have forged like Augusta Baker and they look at, at how they uh, did collections for children of color um, at the time, and it's amazing to see how their criteria still holds up today. But then they go into the history around um, like caricatures and stereotypes that have been portrayed for years in children's literature around um, different cultures. So that is a was a very good webinar to dive into that. So moving from just children's to the overall library, what are some other ways that oppression or racism may show up in library services? A lot of times for bilingual staff, that can show up a lot, whether that's in exploiting um, or marginalizing. I know for my library, um, we try to make sure that we are outsourcing and paying to make sure that our um, stuff is translated. We don't put that burden on our bilingual staff that is not for them or others to request of them to do. Uh, so we try to make sure that we hold areas like that equitable. We had to make sure for programming that we are, especially I feel like summer reading is easy to do this, that we're making sure we're representing different parts of the community and marketing. So that is celebrated. I know for adult programming, there was the fake news incident that happened. And we had to do sort of that community nimbleness where they wanted a town hall around fake news. And in making sure that the panel and everything was represented, we got called out by the community because we hadn't vetted who was going to be on the panel and ended up to be like all white males. So then from there, our whole institution created programming uh, filter tools to make sure that we're aware of barriers, we're aware of um, looking at if anyone is organizing a program, what is happening as far as making sure that it's just not one viewpoint or one thing represented, whether you're trying to put that together in five minutes or you have a bunch of time uh, that everyone is cognizant and aware that equity, diversity, and inclusion is important and having the tools that even if if you don't have that same muscle or you're still building that muscle, it was a lens to make sure that, hey, here is stuff to think about um, as I'm putting together a program. What are some ways that public libraries can best advocate for social justice at the local level? I feel that being hyper-local, showing up in spaces, supporting work so it's visible so other community members see that you're serious around um, work. Inclusion and equity, for example, when our strategic plan, when we were 
going through that process to be human, um, like a human-centered design strategic plan. One of our community members made sure to let us know that if we're going to put inclusion and access in there or inclusion, diversity, and equity, then they need to see us in those spaces where the training is happening, where uh, if speakers are coming in, we're supporting that work. So I think being visible to the community is super important if you um, put that as uh, one of your library's goals visibly and, and outwardly. Internally, creating a staff culture where you're normalizing these conversations and allowing people to have these conversations, providing training opportunities um, top down, bottom up. I know that we've moved into, uh, just as Kalamazoo and other libraries across the country have anti-racism task force to making sure whether that is bringing in strategic training opportunities in all different sectors of the library, providing book discussions um, and opportunities as people go on this journey, making sure that we're intentional again and thoughtful that it's just not a saying that we're committed to this work. I always call it towing the line. So what what does hiring practices look like? not enough sometimes to just have a shared language or just have resources if you are not seeing any difference in your organization. So um, is there support for recruiting and retaining? Are you looking toward the future? advocating and building up um, opportunities and spaces for kids of color to know that this is a place or or a space for them and for their future. So I feel like there are all different ways that um, as an institution, internally or externally, um, you can advocate and essentially remain relevant (laughs) Uh, so that your community realizes that you're just not a space for certain people. Um, We talk about that the library is for everyone, but do they really see that? Do you have stories both on your staff level and in the community that can back up that you're an equitable space, that you're for inclusion and that you're for diversity, or, and my favorite thing of oppression, that you're fighting (laughs) against oppression, hopefully moving to a space in some time in the future of liberation. And there's always work to be done. No one is where they're supposed to be, but uh, what are you doing to help push that needle of social justice forward just a little bit? Great advice. Thank you very much. So you mentioned anti-racism. Can you talk a little bit about strategies for implementing an anti-racism agenda at the public library? PLA has the symposium for social justice uh, starts with us and some of their handouts they have a moving your institution to a transformative, multicultural, um, fully inclusive institution and and other categories. I feel for a task force, a lot of times to get started, there has to be buy-in um, at the at the top level between people who hold spaces of power and are able to wield those spaces of power. And then that person, albeit director, may have to um, go before the board and make sure that they have buy-in around that. We are really fortunate that our city is also embarking around creating an internal culture for equity, diversity, and inclusion. So we're partnering up with the city EDI, assistant to the city manager, to make sure that what we're doing just isn't within the library, but it's spread out um, to other city staff as well. 
So the advocacy is super important um, at the top. And then for us, it was making sure that our task force was horizontally structured. So it's just not enough to have just only people with power, but staff at all levels should feel that they can be a part of something if they so choose. And again, I just feel like normalizing a lot of those conversations to make sure that if we're saying that we want to provide access to everyone, then having the tools and being strategic that our customer service, our collections, every multifaceted department, even maintenance, because how people use space is different as well, that everyone has an opportunity to be a part of learning more around anti-racism strategies. I know, um, I think it's Ibram Kendi who wrote the book, How Not to Be an Anti-Racist, talks about turning racism or racist from an identity and and he goes through the, the history around that and to more of this way to realize that um, you could do something that's oppressive and, and do something that is wrong, um, learn from that, and then figure out strategies and implement policies and practices that are hopefully anti-racist. So I feel that part of the anti-racism task force is realizing that in order to support and retain people of color internally, um, there has to be intentional ways for that to happen. And hopefully we can go forth to not just being all talk, but having some stuff behind it as well. We're super new. We just got a new director within, I think, about a year now. So with the new strategic plan and everything else, we were able to advocate for that. But that's been a couple years of of working our institution into going forward and embarking on sort of what I call like an accountability (laughs) uh, team is really uh, what that would look like. So if we are going to tell the community that we want to be inclusive and we want to be anti-racist, what does that look like, and who can hold or help hold an institutional accountable for that? Um, That's part of what at least we're trying or taking a risk on. So you mentioned the PLA workshop, the name of which is Social Justice and Public Libraries, Equity Starts With Us, and you are a featured presenter at that workshop. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what attendees are learning at that workshop? I think that everyone's journey has to start from some place. So Mia, the main facilitator, is there to really start everyone off in giving them a perception around how oppression specifically has shaped us um, as a society, as a country, uh, and then how does that show up in libraries? Because a lot of times it's really easy to want to be in denial or not really want to sit with that tension, with that uncomfortable comfortableness. This workshop is really that first beginning look into wherever your institution sits, wherever you sit around oppression, and then looking toward what is resistance and then what does solidarity look like. And then more importantly, a lot of times, I would say sometimes librarians get bogged down in the weeds. If you have power to enact changes, what are the things that you can control, right? And then if you can't control them, what's in your influence? What can you advocate for what can you strategically try to shape and and change for the better. So it's two days of starting out or meeting you are wherever 
you are on the journey. And then hopefully you'll leave with tools to bring back to your library wherever you fit in to the library narrative because it is for everyone. And then trying to make sure that in that space, whether you're just bringing back tools to your peers and your colleagues or if you're a manager and can um, help build knowledge sharing with your staff um, or if you're a director where you can directly change policy and practice. Um, Wherever you find yourself on this journey, it's giving you a framework, a beginning framework and guide into taking steps to be the world that we want it to be, not as it is, but creating that America that has not happened, but that we hope (laughs) will eventually happen. Well, it's been great talking to you today. All of your work and projects are very interesting and exciting, and I wish you the best. Is there any last thoughts you wanted to leave us with or any new projects you wanted to tell us about? I guess I should say that the Black Caucus of the American Library Association has a um, conference uh, next year in Tulsa. And so if you want to learn more about that, I do know that they have their website up now. So to register, they are taking a call for proposals. Um, So wanting to um, push that out, it's the National Conference for African-American Librarians. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jessica. That was Jessica Bratt, Youth Services Manager at the Grand Rapids, Michigan Public Library. She is currently speaking at a PLA workshop, Social Justice in Public Libraries, Equity Starts With Us. Visit www.pla.org to see if the workshop is coming to a library near you.